And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective Podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line, as always, by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, it looks like it's time to look ahead to the 2022 season because the Mets are doomed this year. I like, you know, we're recording this early on Tuesday morning, and I like how, like, the morning aesthetic of a podcast, at least uh, for me as a late-night baseball writer, uh, is is relatively low energy. So I think that matches the feeling for most Mets fans uh, after speak for Monday yourself. night. Speak for yourself. I've had, I've had two large cups of coffee, and I am enraged. <laughs> See, uh, you know, as someone who, who generally uh, is up late at night and sleeps in late, uh, I, I don't drink coffee, so I have not gotten up the uh, the uh, anger quite yet. Uh, well, uh, so if you didn't see it in the Mets delayed opening day on Monday night, they uh, had a nice, they, they eked out a couple of runs for Jacob deGrom, which is always a, a, never a given. And DeGrom pitched beautifully through six innings, uh, only through 77 pitches before he was pulled. I think that's a decision that was questioned at the time, but could be justified just by saying, well, you need to get some of these relievers work because everybody just had three days off that that no one expected. So I get that. It did feel like Luis Rojas was was outmanaged a little bit in in that one. And and of course, uh, Trevor May and and Aaron Loop struggled in the eighth inning, coughed away the lead, and the Mets' comeback effort fell just a a few feet short with Pete Alonso driving a a long fly ball to the right field wall that, that Bryce Harper caught to end the game. Maybe last year with a juiced ball, it's gone, and we're talking about an entirely different outcome. Maybe if the wind is a little bit more favorable, uh, that one you know catches the top of the wall, and and it's a different game. But the game we got is a is a I don't want to say heartbreaking because it's the first game of the season, and and for all we can joke about our rage, it, it you know it's one game, but not a not a great feeling uh, after day one. Yeah, it's it's a demoralizing loss. You know, the the Mets are are so good on opening day, and those, those opening day wins have taken on a, a certain kind of character, especially with Degrom on the mound, where like they, I think, eke out is a good good verb for it. There's some offense at some point in the game, and then Degrom just shuts down the other team. Much of it, in the, this the, case, some of it thanks to Degrom. Right, exactly. He he drove in more runs than he uh, allowed. He almost had as many hits as he allowed. Uh, and so you kind of expected, like, you know, even if the even the, the way the Mets play on opening day, like, even if it doesn't look great at various junctures, they usually win. Uh, and so it was it was odd to see it all fall apart in the eighth. Um, I, I think, you, you know, you mentioned Rojas. That's probably uh, the main talking point for a lot of fans. I, I thought before the game, when we got the lineup that had Kevin Pillar leading off and playing in the outfield rather than Dominic Smith, uh, that, uh, like, that was not how I would have set up my lineup. You know, in general, I, I like playing like your your starters on opening day, regardless of the handedness of the other pitcher. Especially when you have mm-hmm. like you know, this isn't a strict platoon with with 
with Pilar, at least I don't expect it to be a strict platoon. I think you will have games against lefties where uh, Smith, Nimmo, and Conforto are your outfield. Um, but I didn't, like, hate the move. Uh, you know, I, I thought, like, oh, man, if I were a talk radio host, this is what I'd be talking about for the next hour and a half. As a writer, it's a tweet, and it's like, eh, it's fine. Um, but what I didn't like was that, you know, all, all spring and, and actually back into the winter, Rojas had talked about being more aggressive uh, in-game strategically than he had been last year. That was one thing he really wanted to do. Uh, and you hit Kevin Pillar leadoff rather than lower in the lineup against the lefty because you want to maximize the chances he gets against the lefty. You want to set up the exact situation that the Mets had set up in the fourth inning, which is that uh, the Phillies pull Matt Moore uh, after 18 hitters uh, with the bases loaded down two to nothing uh, because Kevin Pillar is coming up. Because you have put the righty in the leadoff spot, you get the lefty out of the game earlier. Uh, you know, if, if Brandon Nimmo is the Mets leadoff hitter last night, uh, Matt Moore is pitching to that 19th hitter in the game. Um, but because Pilar's there, you've got the lefty out of the game, you've got a righty into the game uh, in Brandon Kinsler, uh, and you've got Dom Smith on the bench. And this is, you know, like, this is the reason you hit Pilar leadoff is to pinch hit for him in this spot with Dominic Smith, with the guy who was your best hitter last year with a chance to break this game open. Uh, and I thought it was it was conservative to leave Pilar in the game. Uh, afterward, Rojas talked about, you know, he wanted to, in, in a game they were leading slimly, uh, he wanted to maintain their defensive edge with Pilar, which, uh, you know, it's it's the fourth inning. It's a little, like, like, you know, he was asked whether, you know, you've got Almora on the bench, why not hit Smith there and then just use Almora on defense? And he said it's it's too early to use two players for the same spot. Uh, to me, first of all, you don't put Almora in the game right away. You, know, you use Smith as a pinch hitter, and you keep him in the game for a little bit. And then you use Almora when it's like the eighth inning. That's when you use your second player for that spot. That's when you care a little bit more about defense. Like, you didn't mm-hmm. put Luis Guillorme in the game for J.D. Davis in the fourth or fifth inning. Uh, I think you think about defense later uh, and then that. You know, it's still way too early in the game to, to, to care definitively uh, about the defensive edge. You know, he cited especially, I mean, I'll say, especially with DeGrom on the mound, what do you, he's striking everybody out anyway. Right. And, you know, he cited the play Pilar made in the, the first inning to cut down uh, Reese Hoskins trying to stretch into a triple. It was a nice play, but I feel like sometimes uh, we, we are so uh, accustomed to the uh, mediocre defense of the New York Mets that even like a, 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 a decent play turns into a great play. Like that was a nice play. Um, it was a well-executed relay. It's the kind of thing we didn't see the Mets do uh, with any kind of consistency last year. Uh, but it, it, it's not like he uh, he robbed two home runs or something. So I, I thought that was the spot for Smith. The the Degrom pulling Degrom, I, I was okay with after the fact when you heard Degrom even be okay with it and say that was kind of the plan going in because mm-hmm. of the unusual nature of of having ten days without seeing anyone, without pitching to anyone. So I, I think. Uh, that one I'm fine with, but I, I, you know, if you're if you're angry at the manager for a move, I think it's got to be the the Smith Pilar one in the fourth. Yeah, it, to me, it feels like you know why why even have Dominic Smith on the bench if not to use him in a spot with the bases loaded against a, a you know a freshly entered righty reliever. It felt like I, you know it was it's one of those moves where you first guess it, and and those are the ones like when you because. Personnel decisions are so tough, and I think there's a lot always that goes into them that that we don't consider. 
But in in that case, especially since you know we did see Smith later in the game, it felt like uh, you you just you got to pull the trigger there. You got to take your chances with with running Smith into the outfield, figuring uh, Degrom will make things a little bit easier on a, on a stretched defense, and then like you said, you know go to Almora in the seventh if you need to. You know when 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 another spot comes up, uh, it was it was frustrating. Um, and then of course you know the uh, I think frustrations with the bullpen are just so familiar that even if you can say, okay, Trevor May is definitely better than this. This is not a guy we need to worry about from, from one bad outing, which, uh, you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't have great control, but it wasn't like he was completely tagged. I didn't think it, you know, he, there was a little bit of bomb luck. There was a, a shoddy defensive play, Luis Guillorme coming home from third base. Uh, Guillorme got the error. I thought uh, James McCann, uh, it, it looked like to me, and then and then Keith Hernandez uh, emphasized it on the broadcast, like McCann could have maybe caught that ball if he had stretched in a different direction. He kind of lunged for it. Um, you know, again, it's it, it felt... Uh, it felt like a classic Mets loss, which is a, a rough pill to swallow on what we are hoping to be, you know, day one of the new Mets, Steve Cohen, money in a thing, uh, you know, dynasty team. Yeah, you, you wanted it to feel totally different and it felt, uh, you know, it like did September for a while, it did for, you know, yeah, it, it did. I thought, you know, the first seven innings, it felt different. They made some tight defensive plays. You mentioned the Pilar one, uh, Lindor made a, a night, started a nice double play with, with Jeff McNeil turning it. Uh, Lindor almost made another really nice double play, like a six, six, three that, that, uh, DD, I think it was DD Gregorius just beat out. Um, and you know, it felt, they felt like they were playing good, tight defense and then things just kind of unraveled on them, and they and you know you credit them for for fight for not giving up in the in the ninth there, but the comeback effort obviously fell short. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that goes under the radar in a game like like last night's is that the offense wasn't really very good. Um, and you know, I think that's an the, overstatement. I think that's an over. <laughs> I think the offense was was pretty bad. Even the runs they got, you know, it was a, a Jacob Degrom infield hit off the pitcher's glove. You know, there's. Uh, they they were lucky to have those first two runs. Right. The the two-run fourth inning was a pair of walks, a solid single from James McCann to drive in the first run, a bloop to center field that was misread by Adam Hazley, and Jacob deGrom's bloop the other way. Uh, they were not hitting the ball all over the ballpark. You know, I, I think Alonzo had the hardest hit of the night, which was just a line drive the other way uh, in the what inning was that? That was in the, the fifth inning. Uh, you know, they, they ended up, you know, four for 11 with runners in scoring position is, is pretty decent. But when you look at the quality of contact, it wasn't great. They looked rusty. I think the first couple innings against Moore, I think he retired the first seven uh, in the game. Um, and, you know, like the the pitchers they faced last night are not, uh, it, it's not Max Scherzer and the the A group of a, of a really strong bullpen. It was it was Matt Moore who only got 10 outs. Uh, and then, you know, they, they got a little part of the like undercarriage of the Phillies bullpen like Brandon Kinsler hadn't pitched in the first series uh for Philadelphia you got guys like Connor Brogdon and and Sam Coonrod you, you didn't get their a closer in in uh Hector Neris that's why Jose Alvarado was in there because Neris had pitched uh, all three games to this point so it wasn't uh you know this is a Mets offense that should be able to score more than three runs against that collection of pitchers and I think you know I think they will I don't you know 
that's not something to overreact to in one night, especially when the team had the kind of weird layoff that it did. We saw this last year uh, when they had their five-day COVID pause and came back and got shut out, I believe in both ends of a doubleheader against the Marlins the first game, first day back or something like that. So uh, it's it's tough with your rhythm at this point in the season. It's cold. So like, you know, Alonzo's ball the other way in the ninth inning might go out in probably does go out in July in Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, a lot of people want to put it just on Rojas or just on the bullpen, and I am here to tell you there are more things to blame on this roster. Plenty of blame to go around, and that's what we're here to do with the Mets currently 0-1 and one on the season. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What, what, did uh, you, uh, what, what did you take away from, from DeGrom? How much did you enjoy his six innings of work? I loved it. I mean, it was, you know, it was funny. It's like, because he uh, he walked two batters You're like ah oh, he, he doesn't have it today you know that's a degrom allowing any base runners feels like uh he's suddenly you know like oh what's what's wrong here but then obviously he just he settled down and was you know throwing a hundred and in the fifth and the sixth and and blowing the ball by people just uh spectacular which you expect it's just it's um it's something special and something that's almost easy to take for granted at this point. Because, again, like if he allowed two runs in six innings, that's a good start. But for Jacob DeGrom, that's a bad start. I mean, it's it's weird to look at it. And, and I think DeGrom basically, you know, he didn't come out and say it explicitly, but he implied it after the game. Like, that, that wasn't a great start for him. <laughs> uh, like, he allowed three base runners in the first two innings. Uh, and it seemed like he wasn't quite as sharp with his command as he usually is. And he was getting, you know, it, it shows you that, yeah, when you throw the occasional 102-mile-an-hour fastball, it's okay if it's not pinpoint location on the outside corner. He's going to get it there most of the time, but, you know, he can he, it can sneak out over the middle uh, on occasion. He can get away with it. Uh, that he, he mentioned his mechanics not being exactly where he wanted in, in the first, second, fourth, and fifth innings. Uh, and it's like you didn't give up any runs in those innings either. Uh, he did, I think one of the frustrating aspects of him coming out when he did uh, was he was looking as good as he had all night at that point. He had retired nine in a row. Uh, that sixth inning was probably his best inning of the night with the, the back-to-back strikeouts of Hoskins and Harper. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's frustrating, I think, to... I, I don't know exactly how to evaluate, like, the pitch count versus the innings count. Uh, the Mets had put a premium on just the number of times he was getting up and down over the course of the mm-hmm. night, um, which is something you watch for in spring training. Like, there's a reason a pitcher goes one inning farther each spring training start. It's because it's harder on your body to do that. Um, but, you know, when, when DeGrom had already, I believe he'd done the six innings at some point in spring training, 
uh, and you're thinking 100 pitches, uh, and he's been so efficient. Like he did six innings and 77 pitches. That's that's 13 per. Uh, you're thinking, well, you've got room. You know, he can he can go he can do the seventh at least. Maybe start the eighth at this rate. Uh, but they were you know understandably uh, conservative with their ace on opening day. The same way they were last year. If we're if we're being honest, because he, right. he only threw five last year on opening day, uh, and and they're going to come back with him on Saturday, and you hope that he can build up and and be the seven, eight inning, 110, 115 pitch guy uh, more consistently as we get into the season. Yeah, I would th- fully expect him to throw a perfect game on Saturday, but um, I would say, and, and I know this is the type of thing I think managers and, and pitching coaches tend to look for. I think it was in that, that strikeout of Harper in the sixth. It felt like he got away with one, like he left a fastball that was sort of just like you know, right out high and over the middle of the plate. And, and Harper, I, I want to say it was Harper that, that fouled it into the catcher's glove and, and even like looked a little bit like, well, I should have had that one, you know. And um, and again, it's Strom and he's throwing very hard and we know that there's uh, deceptive spin on his fastball and everything else. It looks like it's rising. But when you see a pitch in that in that no-no spot to Bryce Harper, maybe as the manager or as the pitching coach, you say, okay, like let's, Let's do this one one inning too soon rather than one inning too late. And so, like you said, I think, you know, and, and from what DeGrom said after the game, I think you can justify that, especially because, you know, you got Trevor May for just this purpose and you trust Edwin Diaz and uh, and Miguel Castro, who looked great all spring, looked great in this one. So, uh, you know, you can say, I don't know, I, I, I sort of started off killing Luis Rojas. I, I, you can't. It's one game. And, and you're always, hindsight is always going to be twenty twenty. Uh, you had to. You have to trust the bullpen. You have to hope these are your guys, and and May is going to be that that setup guy. And it just didn't work out on Monday night. Yeah, and you know, even if Degrom pitches the seventh, you're probably seeing the same eighth inning with Trevor May to be backed up by Aaron Loop. The way they they've set up their bullpen, May is a guy that I I don't I'm not too concerned about. And uh, I thought his stuff was good. It just it wasn't. Um, he was he he didn't have the 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 proper command of it and he, he didn't throw his slider a lot early in that that outing you know he threw a bunch of fastballs to McCutcheon and ended up walking him uh he's a guy that I you know I, I think when you're worried about who might blow up in the bullpen like I, I don't think Trevor May is going to have a terrible season uh I think I don't think he's going to be as lights out as Edwin Diaz but I think like the range of his possibilities seems slimmer to me I don't know why that is I don't know if I can justify that if you ask me to defend that claim or something uh but that's just how and it I, feels. Won't. Like, I, I won't I won't I I feel like he's going to have like a you know a, an ERA between probably uh two eight and three five uh mm-hmm. or something like that uh and I feel pretty confident in saying that and so I, I'm not concerned about him uh, you know, that it, it was a tough spot to throw loop in. Uh, he has hit some batters in the past, especially lefties. Um, but uh, it, it shows you the kind of that, that three batter rule is difficult in those spots specifically. Yep. Uh, and yet at the same time, if Guarme makes that throw uh, better to home plate, uh, that they, they might get out of there with it still 2-2. So you're putting it on Guarme because I, I felt like I was convinced by the end of that it was McCann. I, I, I think both of them. Uh, plenty of blame like to go it wasn't around. it wasn't yeah it was not a terrible throw it was a throw that should have been caught I don't know if you still get the out if McCann catches it you certainly don't allow the second run if McCann catches it uh so I, I think there's different ways of, of 
uh, breaking up that blame pie. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think it, he was thinking, you know, five two three double play, and I don't think they had any shot at that. If you if you looked at at where the the ba- the the batter was when when McCann would have caught the ball, I don't think they had a, a chance of turning it. So maybe rushed a little bit coming home, uh, being trying to be a little too aggressive. Yeah, I think both of them were thinking of that double play instead of just getting the the very important out at home uh, that would have been a. Uh, would, would have helped shortchange that that rally. Let's uh, talk about what's moving forward. Um, but and and I want to just give a, a brief uh, note that we have something in common. I learned from your this week in Mets, which is that uh, you're not really a fan of the Great Gatsby. Uh, it's not that I'm not really a fan of the Great Gatsby. I, I like the Great well, Gatsby. I just like oh, well, the side of Paradise more. You, I mean, yeah, okay. It's um, the, the Great. Great Gatsby is one of those. I haven't read it in a while. Uh, I had to check. I haven't read it since uh, 2010, and I think I read it uh, initially when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, it strikes me kind of like Catcher in the Rye, which is like it's a good high school book. Uh, it's a book that really captures your imagination when you haven't read like a lot of good books yet. Um, but I'd have to go back and read it again. I, th- I like this side I, of Paradise. I just really like. So. I hated it in high school, and then I hated it in college, and I hated it in grad school. And I'm not. I'm it by no means uh, someone who is like anti books, uh, obviously. But I just, I just feel like The Great Gatsby is to me. It's like the most overrated book in the entire like major Western canon. I think it's. I, I don't know. I, I, I have a lot. We could talk about this on a separate podcast, I guess. I think The Great Gatsby kind of sucks, would be what I would say. Um, but but and, that's, a, that's, a hot, that's a hot literature get, take for you. I'd get into an argument with you and be like, but f- A Farewell to Arms is so much worse, Ted. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't really go for Hemingway either. Uh, it's not, neither is my style. But The Great Gatsby, so I, I don't know. I don't know really anything else of, of F. Scott Fitzgerald's because The Great Gatsby turned me <laughs> off so much. And what gets me... I'll just say it's the eyes, the eyes looking down on them. It just feels like such pathetic, uh, forced symbolism. It serves no purpose to the story. It is just like every once in a while, we're going to remind you that there are eyes looking down on these people. Um, and I just feel like that's, that's, uh, that's, it's trying too hard and, and it's tactless would be... (laughs) Take that, F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> then you're really gonna like the Baz Luhrmann movie because it just it, it uh, exaggerated all of the most obvious metaphors <laughs> in the yeah. book itself. I mean, to you know, there's like degree. like a conch shell in the Lord of the Flies that served a purpose. You know, it it was a, it was symbolic, but it was also a very important element of the plot until it shattered. But the, the eyes, there's no reason for the eyes to be there. He just wants to remind you that some something is looking down upon these people at all times. Uh, the Mets. They are have expressed uh, we're, they're going to learn they're going to learn about the covid vaccine yeah you know you had jd davis and michael conforto last week and into the weekend talk about uh getting vaccinated as a personal choice uh and uh how they weren't you know davis said he hadn't really thought much about it conforto was not comfortable sharing whether he was going to get vaccinated uh, and and revealed that he himself had uh covid19 uh prior to spring training uh, and then Sandy Alderson uh, said on Monday, essentially, that the uh, the hesitation on behalf of the players, and I, I don't think he meant just those two. Those were the two that spoke publicly. Uh, the Mets had also taken a survey of their clubhouse. That hesitation among their players was one reason they were going to have an, an educational slash informational session in Philadelphia over Zoom today. Could be going on as we're recording this. Who knows? 
uh, and that the, they would be offering uh, vaccines on Thursday after their home opener against the Marlins. You've got the off day Friday to deal with the side effects, which should not be much this time around. This is the first shot of a two dose mm-hmm. sequence. I think anecdotally, at least, and, and maybe scientifically by this point, uh, most of these side effects come with the second dose uh, later down the road. The Mets have two off days three weeks from now, so that would make sense to give it then. Um, I, I think, you know, the before, uh, like, I'm going to say two different things here. A, uh, I don't like the framing of it as a personal choice. This is more of a civic it's duty. Not a personal, um, it's not a personal choice, right? It's a, and, you, it's an individual choice that you can make or not, but it's not really personal because it's it's about all of the people around you. And, and B, I'm not going to excoriate the players themselves for saying that because I don't know, you know, especially a guy like Conforto, who is the union rep, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what kind of guidance he was or is getting from the Major League Baseball Players Association on what to say. Uh, I think this is a, a it's a union that is uh, really, really uh, emphasizing unity uh, this mm-hmm. year in particular with the, with the CBA coming up. Uh, and the union does not want to alienate any of its members at this point in time. Uh, and so I can see them being especially conservative when it comes to something like this and Conforto having to, you know, feeling a responsibility to say what he said the other day uh, as a union rep. Um, but you would like to see, you know, I am glad to hear Alderson uh, say what he said on Monday about, uh, you know, giving giving the players more education and information on the science behind this, on, on what they can expect in terms of, of side effects uh, on on the good it will do for not just them and the team but their families the community uh you know the the Mets I thought said a lot of the right things last year about following the protocols for those reasons Conforto himself said we know if we're if we slack off at the ballpark that's affecting our families uh this kind of falls into that umbrella uh for me and you know I I hope I didn't write anything about it yet. I wanted to see how the Mets actually responded as players when the vaccine was available to them. And my mm-hmm. hope is that on Thursday, uh, a lot of them do get it. Well, and, and you know, I think I agree with you. I, I bristle at the personal choice thing, but you, I, it, it is, I, I feel like if a player is being honest, then I, I hate uh, criticizing that because it, so, so often I think players are, are just so, so guarded. And so if a guy wants to come out and say, He's hesitant about it. I w- I would probably provide reasons I wasn't hesitant about it. But you you can if at least it's honesty. You know, like at least you're being forthcoming. Uh, and so I I could respect it to some extent. But yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, they they will essentially be rewarded, but with with re- with lesser restrictions if they can get eighty five percent of the team to get the shot. And so. Hopefully that carrot on the end of the stick is big enough that that guys who are a little bit hesitant can say, okay, like this is this is for the best for everyone. And I will just add anecdotally that I am by no means a professional athlete. I have had both shots and I had no side effects whatsoever. I had um, like a little bit of soreness at the injection spot. And, you know, I would be someone based on my own immune system. I would have I expected to have a, a pretty bad side effect. And, and I imagine there's some random chance to it, but I got nothing. I mean, I felt like I forgot by the next day that I had even gotten the shot. Uh, so if there are Mets out there listening, it's not, it's not, you're not necessarily going to be laid up from this. You, you might be like me and, and walk away feeling fine. Uh, and, and presumably every single guy in that clubhouse is, uh, physically a, a much, much, much better prepared than I am to, to in, endure something like that. 
I, I thought the funniest part of 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 this mini controversy uh, was JD Davis, you know, saying like, you know, I, I understand the the restrictions will be let off, but like, not a lot of us are really trying to do things outside right. the ballpark. And I was, I, I wanted to be like, now JD, like. <laughs> Like, let's be real here for a minute. I understand your commitment to your job, but like, we've all been in this situation for a year plus now. Uh, I don't think, do you remember what life was like before yeah, this? Do you remember what it was like having interaction? And, you know, maybe baseball players do get a little bit more face-to-face interaction uh, with one another than than me and you get. Uh, but I, I I found that, I was like, well, that's, that's a strange thing to say. That's a strange thing to think <laughs> at, at this point in time. Yeah, I was. It was funny. I was listening to on SNY. They had a they had a little reunion show with the guys from the the greatest infield ever from 1999, and uh, they talked about the Mojo Ryzen thing and where that came from. And it came from uh, John Olerud after the the team went out together and saw Austin Powers. John Olerud talking about like the team getting their mojo back, which was which was an Austin Powers gag. Um, and and it dawned on me that like th- these Mets aren't gonna. They're not going to go to the movies all together. And so uh, hopefully they maybe they watch that, too, and think like, well, we'll get our mojo back if we can all uh, vaccinate ourselves and, and start start living normal, some semblance of normal life and that baseball players have any semblance of normal life uh, once more. Yeah, do a Zoom watch party of Austin Powers, too. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> riveting. Uh, before we go, I want to get to one reader question, and this is from from Pat, my my childhood next door neighbor again. Uh, and it's a good question, and and something we could talk about for hours, but we won't. Um, he wants to know: Should Mets fans care about the luxury tax? What I'm really asking is not about the money that Steve Cohen has to pay in penalties if they exceed the tax. At what point does exceeding the tax potentially hurt the Mets competitively in the form of losing draft picks? Uh, it takes a little while. Um, you know, you you've got to go over. Uh, uh, you've got to go over the three different thresholds um, in the the luxury. You've got to go like forty million dollars over the initial threshold. So that would be a year like this. It would be two hundred and ten million is the the threshold. You'd have to go to two fifty, uh, mm-hmm. which I think the Dodgers are in fact over. Uh, and which like the 2018 Red Sox went over. Right. And and those um, are two great examples because I think that like and, and now the Red Sox are, are, are well under. You know, I think that if you can you say, OK, this is our window, like this is our team and let's just go for it. And the 2018 Red Sox won the World Series and the 2020 Dodgers won the World Series. And like, you know, maybe someone who is more casually following the sport might hear, hey, the 2018 Red Sox went over it by that much. And they were, were worse in 2019. They were terrible in 2020. They looked, they got swept by the Orioles to start 2021. Is this tied to them going over? Uh, and the answer is it's tied to them overreacting to going over because mm-hmm. they traded Mookie Betts to get under. Uh, and they kind of rebuilt their roster in a different way because they had gone so far over, uh, which with the financial penalties were not crippling by any stretch of the imagination the red sox pay the their luxury tax penalty if i remember correctly was about 11 million dollars for going over you know they went 40 something million over right which is like a a fourth starter right uh and like i i remember i wrote about this a couple months ago you compare it to the nba the nba's penalties are significantly or like a hundred fold harsher uh, or tenfold harsher uh, where like the Warriors this year traded for Kelly Oubre, who's making like eighteen million dollars, and it's costing them eighty million dollars in tax. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, the the twenty eighteen Red Sox in the NBA would have paid one hundred and forty one million dollars in tax instead of eleven. Uh, so that's a lot more. 
Um, they moved back 10 spots in the draft because of that, uh, mm -hmm. which is, you know, that is an, an effect, but probably not one commensurate with what you're adding to your team. Uh, right, it's surmount surmountable because there's so much chance to the draft too, right? If you just draft well, it doesn't matter if you're 10 spots later than the than you should have been. Right, and one, one area where it, it could also hurt is like draft pick compensation for free agents. Mm -hmm. So if you lay out a scenario, let, let's imagine uh, the Mets uh, give Michael Conforto, a con uh, they don't sign him to an extension, they give him a qualifying offer, and he goes somewhere else in free agency this year. Uh, the Mets will get... Uh, a second round, uh, a pick that's after the second round back. So that'll be something like the 70th or 80th pick. That's what they got when, when Zach Wheeler left. They drafted Isaiah Green. He was part of the Lindor trade. Um, if they had been over the luxury tax this year, then that pick, I believe, would be after the fourth round instead of after the second round. Uh, so that would be, you know, a pick that is, instead of being 70 or 80 is more like 140, 150, um, mm -hmm. which is worse. You get less value there, obviously. Um, but uh, also you could try very hard to sign your free agents. Um, and this is draft pick compensation. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're, it's your first round pick that's turning into a fourth round it's pick. A it's anyway. a bonus. Going, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think in general, those things, there's international bonus pool money that gets cut short. You can still go over the international bonus pool uh, if you want to, to pay penalties. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that go into it. Uh, but I, in my mind, really, it's just uh, the, the penalties, which... I think teams treat as significant are not as significant uh, as teams treat them. Yeah, and I think a, a big thing to keep in mind is that there's a, a new collective bargaining agreement to come, uh, hopefully, ideally, without a labor stoppage, but it's certainly a possibility. And you have to assume that the collective bargaining, ta uh, the the competitive balance tax, which has been, uh, you know, which was which was as as its name implied, it was. In, in it was put in because the the idea was that it would free up the smaller market teams to compete for free agents and and inspire more teams to uh, try to win games and it, and it just absolutely hasn't played out that way it is instead become this soft salary cap that the big market teams use as an excuse to not pay the extra money I have to assume that that is very, very, very high on the players union agenda would be uh, completely restructuring how that tax works or, or if that tax exists. I think it's there's no putting it back in the bag at this point. And, and uh, it's probably something that that the, the teams, uh, the team side will uh, fight to keep to some extent, but it's going to be restructured. Yeah, it'll be an interesting aspect of that that bargaining of where that ends up like i think you're right it'll still exist in in i think much the same form i think the the players association will grapple over where that number is it went up you know <clears throat> at the time of the last negotiation uh it was at 189 million uh it went up slowly over the course of the last five years to 210 um which is as as you know the biggest jump it had in any single year is 11 million dollars uh we'll see what it happens to it next year and and for the next three to five years whatever the the next cba covers uh whether it goes up to something like 230 over the course of those five years or, or something like that or whether it stays relatively stagnant uh and is you know only goes up to 215 or 220 uh i think that'll be a a significant part of the bargaining uh and and every fan loves hearing the minutiae of financial bargaining so 
If you, like Pat, have a question for the Metrospective podcast, you can email me at asktedberg at gmail.com. You can get at Tim on Twitter at Tim Britton. You can, you can get at me at OG Ted Berg. Please rate us, review us, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, via The Athletic, wherever you listen to podcasts. We very, very much appreciate it. We will be back later this week with hopefully some Mets wins we can talk about. Tim... Thank you so much, as always, and peace out. Adios. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.